Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, people, it's uh, it's a two-year anniversary of when I got out of the hospital a while back. And it's very funny because that was the only time, I think, except maybe around Christmas two years ago, that's the only time I didn't at least record one new show in the studio because I was stuck in the hospital right around the corner. and uh, But I'm better now, so it's good. I've changed my life. I stopped smoking, which if you people are smoking, I don't want to preach, okay, because I'm not that type because I did it for 25 years. But if you smoke, stop, just for one, because you're wasting your money. I mean, I know in L.A., I think cigarettes are five fifty, but back east, they're like 9 bucks. And what happens is when you're a smoker, you don't notice this. And when you stop smoking, you notice that, honestly, you just smell like crap. I mean, I sit there and I'm sitting there, I come in, my friends will be at a bar and they'll come inside from smoking and I'm like, why didn't you ever tell me I smelled like that? But anyway, we have a great show. We have a, a gentleman who was on like three, three and a half years ago and uh, we and him co-starred in the, the very wonderful movie, Killer Drag Queens on Dope, which I was telling uh, John Kapalos about how, because Mark had credits and I didn't, I had to shave my goatee and not wear glasses. Of course, I'm the cross-eyed one. I should have got to wear my glasses, but he got the goatee and the glasses. Our guest is Mark Belsman. How you doing, Mark? Hey, what's happening, man? Not much. I haven't seen you since last time. I mean, I follow you on Facebook, and I know you've yeah. been traveling. And I remember last yeah. time, people last time, just, you know, Mark was in, at the time was in a show at the, uh, the what theater was it? The Ford? Uh, at that time, it was at the Steve Allen Theater. The Reanimator show mm-hmm. and the musical? Yeah, it was Reanimator the musical, right. And I remember you sent me a thing in and I, <laughs> I didn't go and I tried to make some excuse about <laughs> why I didn't go and he totally called me out on, on air. <laughs> <laughs> now, is, is that, does that still play? or? No, we did it off and on for about three and a half years. And uh, in 2012, we went to the New York Music Festival and then the whole cast flew to Scotland to do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. That's the last uh, we've done it. There's talk of it coming back to New York off Broadway or Chicago or something, but nobody's done anything with it. So Now, for something like that that you do, it's such a long project, yeah. maybe three and a half years, do you miss it? I mean, or did you get start getting a little tired? Because I would think when you're doing it constantly, because you guys did it a lot. I mean, when it was at the, uh, the Steve Allen Theater, you did it a lot. Yeah, we did a Steve Allen Theater, and we did another run at the Hayworth Theater here in L.A., and then uh, it went on the road, and it's uh, gotten press all over the world. And uh, I don't know why it's sitting on a shelf, but, you know. Do you ever get? Do you ever get though? Like, does it get monotonous sometimes? Like you're going going to get up on stage. I mean, I know with stand up, that's why you know I don't really do stand up much anymore because you get up and you're like, oh god, I got I got to do this again. And it sounds no. awful. No, it's the most exciting thing ever. Just to be working as an actor is just such a great blessing, and uh, I'm so fortunate that I get to do it. And uh, I just got cast in another play called Without a Net. We'll be running at the White Fire Theater in uh, Sherman Oaks starting next I, month. I, I may come to that one. See yeah, that? I will. Hey, like, look, wow! Because my girlfriend now that he stopped here. smoking and he said congestive heart failure, he's exactly. like, oh yeah, I can do that. I can, that might die. And I'll say, I never saw Bellsman live. <laughs> so now, now, are you originally from Chicago? No, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Born and raised. Uh, moved to Chicago in 1985 and. Uh, I was a, one of the founding members of I.O. and the group Barons Barracudas. And then I got hired by Second City like uh, eight months after I got to Chicago, and I worked there for six and a half years. Now, what, what made you get into this wonderful business? I mean, as, as a kid, were you funny, or did you want to act as a kid, or did that come later in your life? Well, I, I've, I've, I've played the tuba since I was in fourth grade. I still do. And uh, somebody uh, in Detroit asked me if they could rent my tuba for a Lazy Boy Chair magazine ad. And I said, sure. And they said, you want to be in it? And I was like, yeah. And that was my first acting job. And I haven't done anything else for 32 years. 
That's crazy. So that that you got a did you get paid for it or did the tuba, yeah or did the tuba get paid? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, the tuba you uh, got paid, but uh, yeah, I got paid, and it was the you know I did, it was my first taste of acting, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And there was some other people in the in the set who were acting, and uh, that I talked to them, and they really enjoyed uh, and encouraged me to keep going, and I did. Now, how did you pick the tuba? Because I know it's weird. Like, my family is musical. I have no yeah, talent. But yeah. my sister, this is the weirdest combination. She played the cello. Uh-huh. And then she took up, I believe it was the flugelhorn. Or the, is that, that looks like the French horn, right? Yeah. Well, no, the flugelhorn looks like a big trumpet. It's a bass trumpet. Maybe, maybe, maybe she played the cello and the French horn. Yeah. But that that's, makes sense. That's sort of weird, especially for a woman, because that's a big instrument. But like for you, like when we were lo- younger, it's like no one. We all walked to school. I don't know where, if you walked to school. Yeah, or took a bus. of course. No, we walked. And I remember I took. I had. I played the trombone, and mm-hmm. I wasn't that good. And I remember my big. My big moment was in sixth grade. I was supposed to p- play uh, "Flight of the Bumblebees," a duet with this girl named Liz Schiffman. And I forgot <laughs> all about this. And she sent me on Facebook, and I got mono, and I, I couldn't show up. But I remember it was a pain in the ass carrying the trombone, the tuba. And especially Detroit, how would you get to school if it snowed? I mean, it must have been a, it'd be impossible. No, well, you I, you couldn't carry a tube. I mean, I didn't. I never took it home, really. Oh, so you only you never practiced, which is good for your family. You didn't practice at home. Yeah, yeah. No, it picked me because I had an older brother who went through three instruments. And when it came my turn, my parents were like, no way. We're not going through that again. And the instrument teacher said, uh, there's a sousaphone in the back. And I said, sure. So... It picked me. I didn't pick it, and uh, it's been great. I love it. Now, does the tuba, does it have a mouthpiece very similar to a trumpet? Or? Yeah, it's just much bigger. Okay. So that must be, does it Does it take a lot out of you to play? Like, because I would think blowing no. into it, it's so big. It's like, and I guess it's just an instrument. You're not thinking, like, I would be like a trumpet. You're like, no, it's a fallacy because the instrument's already filled with air. It has air in it. You don't have to fill the instrument with air. Okay. You're just pushing it through. So... It's a it's it's just about embouchure, which is your lip position and uh, and blowing, and it's just uh, one of the most pleasurable things that I do. Now, you started when you were in fourth grade playing the tuba. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, where did you? I mean, you, did you join the marching band? I don't guess they're not marching bands. Did you do? No, like, I went cool. to a college prep high school in Detroit called Cass Technical High School, and we didn't have a football field, so there was no marching band. Okay. But it was a college prep school, so I majored in music. So we were like the top band in the city and uh, won all the awards and went to all the competitions and done all that stuff. But I played in symphony orchestra, symphony band, concert band, jazz band, all that stuff. Okay, so so you're doing that. Now, mm-hmm. do you go to college? or I mean, how did you end up going to Chicago? Because, I mean, it, um, did a tuba scholarship take you there? or I mean, because you ended up going to Chicago and starting no, out. No, I dropped out of college. I was going to be a brain surgeon, and I did two years of liberal arts, and I was like, uh, that's not for me. Where'd you go? And then I discovered Wayne State University in Detroit. Okay. And then uh, I discovered I could uh, play a doctor on TV. So uh, it kind of found me. I, I, I read... Uh, Del Close, who was the guru of all improv, was coming to Detroit to do a workshop, and I read about it in the Detroit Times, I mean the Detroit News, and um, I cleaned out my bank account and went and paid this guy, Jonathan Round, uh, the money for the workshop, and from that workshop, I got hired in the Detroit Times Theater Company, where I met my wife, and Tim Meadows, and Mike Maddox, Dave Floyd, a bunch of guys out here who's still working in the business, and... um, uh, this was in Detroit. Yeah, this okay. was in Detroit. I started doing improv and sketch comedy, and and then uh, I I uh, 
was in touch with a guy named Michael Gelman, who's the artistic director of the uh, school in Chicago, Second City right now. And um, he t- said, uh, what are you still doing in Detroit? Uh, you better get out of there. You'll die there. And uh, that's what kind of motivated me to move to Chicago. So that was your first, I mean, that that class you took was your introduction to doing improv. Like you were just a tuba, yeah. a, you were a tuba player who was going to be a brain surgeon. And you had, you did you have, did you follow improv? Did you follow comedy did, before that? Or you just were like. Yeah, well, I was always a big fan of Monty Python and Firesign Theater and uh, Second City, of course. I, I knew about that because of John Belushi and John Candy and. Uh, Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray. I mean, they're all, you know, the legends. Right. And uh, and that's the really cool thing about being in the Second City family is it's a very small family, but it's a it's like going to uh, uh, Ringling Brothers Clown College. You know, it's like you learn how to write, direct, act uh, all on your feet in front of an audience. And it's a very exclusive club. And I was such an honor to, to even be considered uh, in that. And um I was, like I said, in Barron's Barracudas doing uh, improv in, in, in Chicago at I.O., studying with Del Close in Chicago. Now, you said you were one of the original people from I.O.? Yeah, the, the first group that would ever uh, uh, in Improv Olympic was called Barron's Barracudas. And who was in it? Joel Murray, Dave Pasquese, Chris Barnes, J.J. Jones, uh, Howard Johnson, who's the biographer for Monty Python, and uh, all of them, all those guys still have prominent careers. There was a a few other people too, uh, Tara Gallagher, Honor Finnegan. Uh, uh, that's all I can remember at the moment. Well, it must have been so. You guys just started this group, like basically. Did Dell get the theater, or how how that come yeah. about? Well, that Sharna it's... Sharna Halperin, who still owns and runs IO uh, in here in LA and uh, in Chicago, and um, well, actually James Grace runs the one out here. He, he's a great guy, um, but. Um, she put together this house team, you know, the first house team, and that was Barron's Barracudas. And uh, then it became, at first it was more like, kind of like comedy sports where we did a competition and the audience would vote who would win. And we played against this one team all the time called Improv Institute. Did you win a lot? Were you guys like the Globetrotters and they were the Washington yeah, Generals? Yeah, 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 exactly. That's kind of how, I mean, I don't know if they perceive it that way, but that's what it was. Yeah. That's cool. So you're doing that, and it's, it's a Getting popular because I mean, are people yeah. coming to your shows? Because it's, um, and you know, if the listeners don't know, this is like, like, this is early improv. I mean, this is like, you know, mm-hmm. th- it's not like when the comedy booms happen. You know, this is in Chicago, then at the time, Improv River, it was Second City and then you guys, right? Pretty yeah, much. it was 1985, 1985, and it was a huge theater boom in Chicago at the time that none of us were aware of. We were just having a good time. But when I started doing improv, over 30 years ago, it wasn't a business. When we did Barron's Barracudas, I mean, nobody got paid. You just did it because you loved acting and you were studying how to be a better performer, how to be a better human being. And that's really what improv is. I mean, we call it acting, improvisation. It's just life lessons. They're all things you should follow. Replace thinking with listening. Make your partner look good. You look twice as good. Um, and all of the principles of that are just, you know, life lessons. See, that's what I do on this show. Seriously. It's, yeah. it's, it, and, and in fact, yeah. it's sort of is improv. I listen. I let you guys look good. And I, mm-hmm. I just they go, okay, well, he can interview people because I get people. But exactly. it's true because I don't plan anything. Like with you, I know you. So and I of yeah. course I look at your IMDb. I always do that with all my guests. Yeah. But I never plan anything out because it's like some people will do your right questions out. I go, no, because creative people just it flows. Yeah, that's uh I call my workshops the art of allowing workshops. 
uh, improv workshops, which is actually stolen from a book called Ask and It Is Given, The Teachings of Abraham. It's all about the art of allowing. Uh, and you want to let it happen to you instead of you trying to make something happen, which is exactly what you're talking about. You don't want to, you know, have something uh, that is going to not really flush out the way you want it to. So if you just trust, uh, which is another rule of improv and another life lesson, is then it, it will all it will all happen. You don't have to really do anything. So so you're at Improv Olympic now. It was mm-hmm. did everyone at the time? Did people from Improv Olympic want to go to Second City? Was that like a, a oh path? yeah? So you're like at the time it was sort of like AAA trying to get to the big show. Is that sort of yeah exactly? It was the gateway to Second City at that time. Now it stands on its own and people get hired right out of IO for stuff. But everybody in IO still kind of wants to go to Second City. So how did you it's, make? Did they approach you to make the jump, or how did that happen? Well, we were kind of the talk of the town when we were doing Baron's Bear. I mean, even all the people at Second City and all the people in uh, Chicago were flocking to see what we were doing and 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 what we were up to. I remember there was one workshop where uh, Sidney Pollack and Bill Murray were working on a movie that they wanted to improvise. So they came and we all did a workshop together. It was Brian Doyle Murray, wow. Bill Murray, uh, Sidney Pollack, Bud Court. A uh, couple other... That's some heavy hitters, man. Yeah, That's some yeah. major hitters. And, well, they were coming to see what we were doing, because Dell was God, you know? I mean, that dude really was the guru of all improv and uh, kind of laid it all out for us, you know, and taught us just about everything we know, and then we carry on the torch. So how did you end up... Did they finally... Did you have to audition for Second City, or did yep. they come and say... We we want you. We saw you. We like your work. Come on, or you have to go through a, was it a big process. No, well, it was sort of it was, it was sort of fixed in a way. I mean, we definitely had to audition, and they had audition, open auditions at Second City, and uh, we all went and auditioned. But they uh, Joyce Sloan, who was uh, the producer at Second City, had been coming to see our shows already. So she basically hired most of Baron's Barracudas as, in its entirety as a touring company. And there already was an existing touring company. And uh, at that time, there was a hierarchy, and there was a national touring company that traveled all over the country. And then there was one, uh, the other touring company was called Limbo Co., because they were just kind of waiting to get in the national touring okay. company. And then when we were hired, she couldn't very well, uh, Joyce Sloan, that is, she couldn't very well make us the national touring company because it was a bunch of people in Limbo Co. waiting to go up. So she invented this thing called Red Co. and Blue Co., okay. which made us sort of equal. But actually, we got all the sweet gigs and, you know, went to, uh, you know, Palm Springs, all over California, Colorado. And the other guys kind of went to o- o- Ohio, Indiana. You know, okay. They, well, back then when you left, when you left in, uh, Improv Olympic, mm-hmm. was, it, was there... A, a bad taste in their mouth or was it like what was it uh, like oh my god you're breaking this camaraderie or they expect people to go to improv and then join there's always this stigma i think when when you succeed at least back then you know i don't feel that way anymore because i'm just grateful to see my friends succeed but there was this kind of like when somebody succeeds you're, you're angry at them for moving on you know you have some kind of jealousy so you're like Oh, they're breaking up the group because, right. you know, That's they got a three-picture deal. Fuck them. You right. know, it's like, uh... So, I got a question. Mm-hmm. Um, I got an answer. Okay. I got a question for you. So, you get to Second City, mm-hmm. and now uh, you're there for six years, you said? I was there six and a half years, yep. Okay. So, but now you get to the main stage and all that, and you're doing all that stuff, and you're out on the road. At what point do you say, I need to go to L.A.? Well, again, it's you know the art of allowing. You just kind of let it happen to you. I spent two and a half years in a touring company, and then I opened a 
resident company in the suburbs called Second City Northwest, which was in Rolling Meadows. Then I was in uh, Second City ETC and then Main Stage. And then I co-starred. I did a bunch of John Hughes movies, you know. Uh, now, now, he hired, which, which John Hughes? Because he hired uh, a lot of people out of Chicago, right? Well, yeah. And uh, actually, I, as a tuba player, I got to play in uh, the polka band with John Candy and Home Alone. So okay. that was one of them. I was in, I got cut out of a few of them. I was cut out of Uncle Buck. I was cut out of Curly Sue. Uh, and then I, I was left in Home Alone, but I didn't have any lines or anything. It's but just, would he come and see you guys and put you in? Or, he, or did he, did you John just Hughes? Have, or did you have to audition? Or did he just say? Oh, I auditioned for all of them. But John Hughes was kind of a fan of Second City. He had come to the shows and saw the main stage. I wasn't on the main stage. I was still in the touring company at that time. But he would come to the shows, and he knew I was in Second City, and I auditioned for him repeatedly. So he knew my work, and he knew that I played the tuba because of my resume, and and sort of they kind of you know actually put me in the polka band with a bunch of real musicians, and I, I was just uh, an actor who was you know playing a musician. So you, you do that. So you get into John Hughes parts. So and everyone yeah. says back then there was a lot of work in Chicago. I mean, you could you, oh, commercials, yeah. TV. I know. Difference. Were you getting any TV back then, or were you going yeah. out for all commercials at the time? Or? Everything, you know. There was there wasn't a lot of TV back then. There was a lot of commercial work. Uh, I uh, I got a part in Red Heat, you know, with Jim Belushi and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I got cut out of that. Sort of, you know, the, like the first three or four movies I was in, I got cut out. What's of. that like? Like, because you sit there, I'm sure, and you and it's thank God it's not now with all the social media. Because yeah. then I'd be like, what the hell happened? But it's it's you get so probably so excited because you're on the set mm-hmm. and then you tell your friends and then the people watch it they probably think you're full of crap they're probably like yeah that's when you weren't in that no i was in it no i didn't see it well got caught. oh yeah yeah my, you know did that did you ever get that stuff of course yeah especially from my mother who was so excited that i was going to be in a movie and then she goes to see it and i'm not in it and then uh, the only one i got left in out of those movies was home alone and she died right before the movie oh, came out so she never got to see that but back to the other conversation is what happened is i co-starred uh, in a movie called Mo Money with Damon Wayans. Right. I remember, didn't they and, uh, put stuff in your mouth at the end or kill uh, you or something? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, had a pretty, I played Damon Wayans' boss, and I got kids stabbed in the back. Now, where'd that shoot? In Chicago. Okay, so it was all got... shot in Chicago. And so after I, I started uh, co-starred in that movie, uh, some agents and managers from L.A. came to see me in Second City, and they wooed me out to Hollywood. So they said, you know, come on out. We'll represent you. We'll get you some work. And so that, at that point, you, at, at some point, Second City's not a career, you know, it's just a job. And at some point, everybody moves on. Now, was your wife um, okay with moving out or did she sit there? I mean, because it's a weird move. Like my girlfriend just moved out here and I was going back and forth back east for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And it was the timing was right. She loves it out here. I mean, you come from back east and just yeah. th- this past winter, thank God I wasn't, last winter was fine when I flew. If, if I'd flown back this winter, we wouldn't be together because every flight would have got delayed. I would have been, you know. Yeah. No, but she... Now, had you had you guys been to L.A. before? Yeah. Well, we met in the Detroit Times Theater Company, so we've been together 32 years now. Had you now. been to L.A. together before you guys moved out? No. No, not together. I'd been out here with the Second City Touring Company uh, like two, I think one or two times, and then I came out for pilot season uh, by myself and went back, and then... Uh, we moved out here, and she was excited about moving out to L.A. It was, it was great. Now, where's the first, I always ask people, where's the first place you moved? Do you remember, like, the first apartment, or what was what yeah. area was it? Yeah, well, we lived in uh, uh, the same apartment for 21 years, which was, uh, like, it was uh, Miracle Mile okay. at Hancock Park, right? right, right uh, it's a nice area. Yeah, it was really nice. And um, 
So when we were doing the uh, reanimator of the musical and we went to Edinburgh, we had been in the same apartment for 21 years. My wife and I were kind of looking for a new place anyways. So we decided to sell everything we own. We sold our cars. We sold everything. We put a couple things in a friend's garage. She met me in Scotland when I was doing the play, and we just traveled around the world for a year, which was amazing. It was great. And you weren't working. You were just... No, I worked everywhere I went, actually. I mean, how did that... Did, did you plan it that way, or did you no. sit there and come in and say, you go into a small town, and you go, oh, there's a local production. Hey, this village looks nice. I'm going to get in a play. Is that how it happened? No, you just kind of... You know, you grow into this uh, lifestyle of, of, of law of attraction, which is what the art of allowing is all about. And you just attract all the stuff. We, you know, I just sent an email to uh, somebody that I had met virtually uh, through somebody else in London. And I went there to teach a couple of workshops. I ended up staying in England for five months and uh, teaching all over England, and it was great. I loved it. It was really uh, fun. So I worked and, and made a lot of money. It was really a great time, and uh, I've been back a, a couple times since, and I intend to go back some more. It's just uh, exciting. I was just over there in March, and I taught the Bristol Improv Festival, and then I went to London and met with an agent who wants to get me some work on the West End, and then I went and taught a workshop in Paris. Now, is it is it? I mean, it's no not a problem, you know, being an American going there and working. Like I know sometimes in Canada, it's it's a hassle for like with comics, they would need like they can only have two American comics in a bill or one. Right. It depends. Was it or is it just free free work over there? Like they don't. No, you. I was there legally, but you can't work. So I was sort of working illegally. Except this last time, I wanted to do it. Uh, so I actually got a work visa, which was really really expensive. What's the whole process of that? What do you, I mean? How does that? How do you get a work visa? Oh, you just have to put in an application with the uh, with the uh, British uh, Arts Council and the border agency, and then they have to approve it and. I had an attorney do it, which was just insane amount of money to go over there legally. But I wanted to because uh, while I was there, the first time I was offered an agent and work, and I they said, do you have work papers? And I said, no. So I wanted to establish myself in movies and television over there and do a lot of other stuff. You know, I could, you know, play tuba. I could... So many things that I do that I love doing that right. I really couldn't do over there. So I was teaching the whole time and performing, and it was great, but... Um, I really want to go back with a, a, a do it legally so I can do all the things that I that I love to do. See, that's cool. It's really it's weird how careers branch because you came out here and mm -hmm. I know you ended up being in uh, Billy Madison. Yeah, co-starred okay. in Billy Madison, mm -hmm. and uh, that was it's so funny because that was that was Sandler's first movie. It was his first yeah. starring movie. Yep, the one he wrote and produced. And it's really Sandler. weird because I loved the early. I love Billy Madison. I loved mm -hmm. uh, I love Happy Kilmore. They just made me laugh. Yeah. But now I watch it and it's like you know I'm like. He's, he takes these roles, but he's so funny. I'm like, they, he's got to go back. I know the people say, oh, well, he's too old to do that. But he's so funny in those roles. I mean, I wish he would do them again. Yeah, well, there's actually uh, on IMDb, there's a little thing called uh, where, where people can, you know, say their ideas. And there's a, a cast list for Billy Madison, too. And, uh, you know, I'm flattered that whoever made that list put me in it. I would love to do it again. And Sandler's just a Sandler doesn't give a shit what people think. He just basically makes home movies with his friends. They happen to cost hundreds of millions right. of dollars <laughs> and he makes hundreds of millions of dollars doing them, but he just does what he thinks is funny and I so respect him for that. Um, you know, he claims that uh, doing Weekend Update literally made his career because 
people weren't writing sketches for him and they, he wasn't working with a lot of people on SNL and he would do the opera man and all those things by himself at basically doing monologues on weekend update and that's how he became a star and well, he really is a very funny guy and he's really down to earth and you know he uh just like i said doesn't care what people think he just does what he thinks is funny and it is funny well that was evident in his old stand-up because his old stand-up was hysterical yeah just like little elvis in the refrigerator and just stuff that is so bizarre and it's so funny mm -hmm. he, like people i don't think a lot of people know that he was he started off as a stand-up i think they, well him and judd apatow lived together out here uh i think they lived in the valley they were college roommates too they were college roommates and all the guys who work on all of his movies tim hurley he who writes all of his movies jack garaputo who produces all of his movies alan covert who stars and produces right. all his movies they all went to nyu together okay so he took the whole uh you know all of his friends uh, along with them on this ride and they're all brilliantly successful and doing really great see that's cool that, that's when i talked to you off air about it that reminds me of the chicago people it's like all mm -hmm. the chicago people still have hang out it's like yeah. they sit there it's like as i was saying you know because nia vardalos was on in her book she said mm -hmm. about you know her group and it's i know it's kate flannery it's rose abdu it's Susie nakamura and, and yeah. they've all hung out they've and, Nia's and they're all brilliant huge and they're all and that's the thing yeah. that's your chicago people what i love is it's not like you know in philly we had we had some good comics that came out we had some very good comics mm -hmm. that came out but there was a lot of ones that sucked yeah, but like in in and no offense to well, the people kinda, that sucked, but uh, <laughs> they kind of fall by the wayside. But though. with you the Chicago, the it way. seems like everyone that everyone who venture pretty much if you're in Second City for a while, like you were, right. if you venture out to L.A., you're going to work and you're going to continue. I mean, you've worked as you said for years, and the thing is, you're going to continually work. I don't know if it's, is it because the training or because you just you learn so much, or what? What do you attribute that to? Well, it, it it definitely is a training. Like I said, you learn how to write, direct, and act all on your feet in front of an audience. Uh, but it's like being in a fraternity. You know, it's um, a very exclusive club of people, and everybody is really successful. And um, it's a support group, really. You know, I mean, people come out here and they like, you know, pay to be in a theater company because they need uh, uh, some kind of support group and somewhere to be creative and some people to collaborate with. And uh, that's what Second City is. So when you move out here, you already have a built-in support group. And it's really important in your survival here in L.A. to have some kind of support group. We all have them, whether it be AA or people you play golf with or people that you hang out with or work with uh, or all the above. It really is, uh, you know, instrumental in succeeding out here. And so you have a lot of successful people who you can talk to and have get advice and share with and work with, which is really the key to, to being successful in L.A. is just working. I always tell my students, you know, I teach all over the world, and I always say the difference between a working actor and a non-working actor is one's working and one's talking about it, and that's right. the only difference. Now, how did you, uh, and we'll, we'll get back to your career more, but how did you get into teaching? How did that happen? Because you, you did all the years in improv, mm -hmm. and when you venture into teaching, I think, did you teach Clint Culp? Yep. Okay, yeah, because yep. Clint was on the show and you came up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. thought he was one of your students. There. Great, you guys, no, another really talented yeah, guy. I think you guys watched the Super Bowl together. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know. He said something. He hung out with you. I don't know. Yeah. But um, so you're sitting there. You, so did, did someone approach you to teach or you just said, you know what? I really feel like I can help these people. How did you become teaching? Well, I started teaching at Second City, you know, and uh, originally there was a second. When they opened the Second City out here, it wasn't a theater uh, per se or for performance-oriented theater. It was a, It was a school. 
and uh, I started teaching there for the first couple of years. They were open out here, and there was a great wave of people who came through. The Clint Culp was one of them, Eric Edelstein, Derek Waters, Drunk History. Right. Eric Edelstein was just in uh, Hawaii shooting uh, Jurassic World, and uh, um, Craig Ansett and Ben Hoffman, and all these guys are all have really successful careers right now. It was just a great wave of people that were here to learn. But I started teaching and realized that and I say this at the end of every one of my classes all over the world is I'm the student. I learn more from my students than they learn from me because as a working actor, you're just constantly reminding yourself of what you need to do when you go to an audition, when you're on a set somewhere, when you're collaborating with other actors or being creative, whether you're writing, performing, improvising, movies, television, doing plays, musicals. I get to do it all. And, um, uh, it, it's just a great opportunity to constantly remind yourself what it is that you need to do. We teach what we need to learn. And so that's all I do is travel around the world and teach what I want to learn. And it's just really exciting and fun. And it makes me smile just sitting here talking see, to you about it. That is so awesome. It's so funny when you say you teach what you learn also about auditioning and stuff like that. Yeah. I went on an audition a few weeks ago and it was for, and I just laugh how some people don't comprehend or take stuff seriously and it was this other comic you know who i can't stand it was an old guy he's not funny but it's an audition for a like a ben stein type and it was mm-hmm. a business you know in a in a boardroom so of course i i had to come to the studio you know i never wear pant, long pants i had to bring you know the shirt the tie and everything i go in and everyone's dressed like nurse females dressed in business suit this schlup comes in with suspenders like wrinkled khakis and like an open white shirt and i'm like do you not take yourself seriously? Because it's set. You're going to walk in. You're going to go. Get out of here. I I disagree with what you're saying. Sometimes those are the guys who get the job because they're different. I remember when I first starting out. You know, I, I used to do a lot of modeling. Believe it or not, you'd go into these like high fashion. Greek? No, no, no. Just character actor stuff. But you'd go into these auditions with all these beautiful handsome, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guys. And, you know, I'm kind of a heavy-set, stocky, short, bald uh, character actor. And I would get the job because they have all these cardboard cutouts of the same people. And then you go in and they see somebody different who's really talented and funny. Uh, and they go, oh, well, I didn't think of that. That's great. I'd much rather have that than this. So, um, you know, that's part of the advantage of not caring. Right. So, and I think that's when you book more work, too, is when you just don't give a shit about the audition instead I, of taking it so fucking seriously. Well, I think that's a lot in life. I think when you just really, if you're too, like I have friends, you know, they sit there and they're like, oh, man, I can't meet girls. I can't meet girls. I'm going to be honest. My girlfriend's beautiful. And you know what? I'm bald and cross-eyed. Okay. And I go, I go, guys, I'm bald and cross-eyed with heart disease. You guys are good looking guys. If you don't, you, they worry so much. And it's like, you're right. If you yeah. just, people worry so much. And, and I, I, I'm i a victim of it, too. Like, I'll sit there and go, oh, my God. Like, if a guest cancels, I'll be like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, a guest cancels. And then it always works out. Yeah. I, mean, I it, stopped uh, doing that a long time ago. You know, you, you do the work on yourself, you know, uh, just evolving and growing. And that's why I highly recommend that book, Asking It Is Given by Jerry and Esther Hicks. It, it changed my life. It's just such a great way to perceive life and just walk through knowing that, uh, well, here's another great example. There's a guy named, you know, Jack Canfield. He wrote all the Chicken Soup for the Soul books. Okay. He has a great book called The Success Principles. And in the book, he talks about his mentor was this guy named W. Clement Stone, who was a 
uh, entrepreneur in Illinois. And W. Clement Stone lived his life under the premise that the world was conspiring in his favor instead of the world's conspiring against okay. me. And so that kind of stuff just rocks my world. I love that. The world's conspiring in my favor. So if something doesn't happen the way you want it, it's a gift. You may not perceive it that way in the moment, but then you go a week or you know, a month, a year down the road, and you look back and you go, oh, well, of course that's why that didn't happen. It's funny you say that, because that's actually that's how I met my girlfriend. I, uh, there you go. I had gone to college with her, but I hadn't seen her in, God, I graduated college in 86. She was too young. I haven't seen her since maybe, I think she came to one of my shows in 90. And it turns out her best friend, right, one of my best friends, and I had gotten out of comedy for so long, and I got back into it, and I got a call from him, and he goes, do you remember Joanne? I said, yeah. And he goes, she they went to a comic, so we started getting in touch, and I was. I had just gotten back into comedy, I, and I asked for an outrageous amount of money, and I knew they were. And, and I gave him a recommendation of a friend of mine who's done Letterman twice, who charged less than me. So we know where they're going to go. And if I had gone back, it would have been weird because I didn't, you know, back at the time. But I said to her then. I said, you know, she went to my college. She's an Eagles fan. She lived right now, well before she moved out, neighborhood next to where I grew up. Mm -hmm. So I said, can we keep in touch? And we kept in touch, and we kept in touch. And finally, I called her. Then I flew her out here but it's true if i had gotten that gig it, i would we probably wouldn't have been together because i would have gone and done the show i may have sucked i they may have hated me but you're you right it's know. weird you sit there and you go wow things happen and it's true that things do happen for a reason everything is a gift whether you perceive it that way in the moment or not you look back and then that's it happened for a reason now um we're just going to jump around here now i've seen your pictures posting pictures on facebook of you playing the tuba yeah now are you getting, I mean, it seems like when you were, back when you were acting, you weren't getting a lot of, uh, like, back in, like, doing the movies in the early days, were you still, were you trying to get tuba gigs, or were you just concentrating on the acting? Yeah, no, I've always played tuba. I, I don't think I've ever stopped, really. Um, it's just something I love to do. I have a 102-year-old tuba that I just had restored. How do you, how does one go about buying a tuba? Like, it's like, do you sit there, because it's not, I mean, you don't see just, like, you don't go, I'm sure you don't go to like, there's no tuba center, no. like a guitar center. Do you have to search for them? They're hard to find? And do you, are there some tubas yeah. that aren't good? Or Yeah, no, the, they run the gamut. There's ones that aren't good and there's one that's bad and they're really, really expensive. And uh, I've had this one since I was a kid. So I kind of rescued it from a storage room and it was just sitting there for, oh, probably 50 years. And it wasn't even playable when I got it. I had to, it took me about a year to clean it up so I could play it. And then, um, I just, uh, I kept it, you know, and uh, I kept playing and kept playing. And, uh, you know, I've been playing in the orchestra for the show called Mortified. You can go to getmortified.com. It's once a month at a, at a bar in Hollywood called King King. And then I have my own show called Tubazar. Yeah, I saw, I, I saw that. I am the czar of the tuba, and I invite other artists to come play their music. They just have to write me a tuba part. And uh, it's really fun night. I, I it's It's kind of... What we're talking about, you make other people look good, you look twice as good. So it's my show. I produce it. I cast it. I get people to write me charts. I host it. And I star in it. But all I do is showcase other songwriters and their music. Okay. Uh, which is, But I get amazing people. Like Harry Dean Stanton came and played uh, harmonica with me. John Kapalos has done it. Okay. Uh, a lot of people, uh, the most amazing songwriters, um, Gary Stockdale, Cynthia Carl. Uh, a lot of people just love doing the show because it's just so much fun. It's just a great night to hang out. And uh, each person gets to do like, you know, two or three songs. And uh, then we kind of bullshit with the audience. And it's very, you know, casual atmosphere. The audience can talk back and 
I talk to them and we play the music and people just can't get enough of it. So how did you come up with that idea? Just you're sitting there going, I want to get a venue. I mean, how did well, you, because it's, it's a very cool idea. And the yeah. best thing about it is it centers around the tuba, which you don't, you don't think of, you know, you don't think of people saying, okay, I'm going to write a part for a tuba, but it, that's awesome. But well, how did you come up with the idea? Well, I have to give some credit to my friend, uh, Wade Kelly, who, uh, uh, he and I, he said, you want to start playing some music? And I said, sure. And so we started doing this act called Tubatar, uh, because uh, it was guitar and tuba. And, um, and then he, we just didn't quite see the, have the same vision. And so I said, well, you, it, you, I'm going to do the show by myself with, you know, I'm going to do the show with or without you. So he didn't want to do it anymore. So I just changed the name to Too Bizarre. And then I started inviting other artists to come play and, and, Fred Kaz, uh, who just recently passed away, was a huge hero and a mentor of mine and a really good friend. And he played the piano at Second City from 1963 until 1989. Okay. So he played for everybody you could possibly imagine. John Belushi, John Candy, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, you know, and he sat at the piano for all those guys for all those years. Was very influential in shaping comedy as we know it today. And he did almost every single one of my shows. And he would be the last act because I would do one song that he wrote to play with me and then I'd let him finish out the night and do whatever he want. And he's so great, such an amazing jazz musician and such a great and prolific writer that it, there's no sense on anybody going on after him. So I would always have him close the show and he was amazing. And I'm so glad that we got to spend so much time together. And uh, uh, now that he's just passed away recently, his memorial service was about... Uh, Oh, two months ago, um, and uh, he was he was a huge supporter of mine, and that's kind of what made me do. You know, if I could influence this guy, and he was excited to do the show, then that just kind of gave me a ticket and license to grow and evolve the show and it's 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 become uh, a lot of fun how do you pitch an idea like that that's because it's such it's like when you go to a bar it's like anything mm -hmm. if you can go okay i'm gonna do karaoke they'll go oh okay well, it didn't work before i want to do trivia oh well, we'll, we'll give it a try i want to do comedy then you go i want to do a i mean how do you have a whole pitch for it or how or you just sit there and do people hear about it no it's just from my reputation i usually do it at a theater i perform at this theater called fanatic salon a lot and uh I do improv there, and I just booked my own night and started doing it, and that's, uh, you know, it just kind of evolved into something. Okay, so, well, see, we're jumping around, because it's just, you have so much stuff going on. It's just cool. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. And, and we're talking about uh, going overseas. I'm very fortunate. I get to do so many different things, and I love every single one of them. It's really exciting. Well, I know when you were here last time, we had talked about Reanimator. We started in the beginning, and now... When you auditioned for that, did you ever think it would like just take you around the world, or was it just something you said, "This is good"? But did you think it was going to blow up the way it did? Um, well, it was it was an exciting adventure, but again, it just kind of art of allowing. You know, it just happened to me. Uh, this guy Mark Nutter, who wrote the music, was doing my two bizarre shows, and okay. he was secretly writing this for uh, the guy who. Uh, directed and co-wrote the movie Reanimator in 1985, and uh, the movie Reanimator won the Cannes Film Festival Critics Pick Award in 1985, and it was originally a, a H.P. Lovecraft story. Um, so uh, Stuart Gordon, who's a brilliant uh, horror director, who's world-renowned, um, was co-wrote and directed the musical, and Mark Nutter wrote the music. So. Um, 
they were doing a reading and I had already said I wanted to come to the reading because I was really excited just to see it. I was a big fan of Reanimator and Stuart Gordon and, of course, Mark Nutter. I've done a couple other of his musicals, Wild Men. I replaced George Went in Chicago years ago. Um, Are you a good singer? Uh, I can carry a tune, okay. you know. I don't have a great singing voice, but, uh, yeah. But um, the uh, So Nutter um, came called me like two days before the reading and said, I can't find anybody to sing the bass parts. And I know you don't have a bass voice, but you understand because you play the tuba, the bass parts. Could you just do the reading for me? And I said, sure. And uh, right after the reading, Stuart Gordon said, I want you in the play. So I never auditioned. And then Stuart knew I was a second city guy. So he kept giving me more and more to do. And I ended up doing eight roles. Okay. And uh, it was really fun and exciting. And George went as a friend of mine for you know, like 25 years, I met him at Second City, and we've kind of uh, crossed paths here and there. Like I said, I replaced him in Wild Men. And, uh, Is he in Kilkenny? Is there something in Kilkenny right yeah. now? I yeah, saw, yeah. It's I just saw a, a picture with him and Joel Murray. I yeah, yeah, the Cat Laughs Festival. We were all there 20 years ago. Uh, I was there with George, and we were all performing uh, uh, improv and doing sketches and stuff, and uh, they invited George to come back because that was the very first... Uh, Cat Laughs Festival in Kilkenny was 20 years ago, and they said, well, we really wouldn't be a festival unless George did it 20 years ago, the first one. So they invited him back as kind of uh, the best of 20 years, and um, he took some Irish guys with him. Michael McCarthy, who was one of the creators of Cat Laughs, uh, who's a brilliant writer and an actor in his own right, and Joel Murray and uh, Byrne Bernadette Burkett is uh, George's wife. Okay. She was there, and they all went to just improvise and have some fun. So we were saying with the, with the reanimator. So mm-hmm. it, you put it up, and you're playing all these roles, and you're having a blast. Yeah, it's so such what, a. What, really what were some fun. of the roles you were playing? Oh, I was uh, Doctor Gruber. I was a med student. I was a surgeon. I was uh, uh, the first reanimated corpse that got killed with uh, getting a bone saw stuck through my chest from the back. And uh, every time somebody died in the play, the first four rows were called the splash zone, and we would spray the audience with blood every time somebody okay. died. So it's sort of an audience interactive show. Now, were you, were you constantly changing? I mean, was you, yeah. So that must be a little oh, it grueling. A, it must be wor- fun, but it must be work. It's it not- was a, it was a great workout. I don't think I was ever in better shape in my life than doing that show because it was definitely you would definitely sweat your ass off between. I was all I did was. Come on stage, scream, die, sing a song, leave, go change into another outfit, and come back on, do the same thing over and over again all night for about, you know, an hour and a half or hour forty five minutes, whatever the show was. So you do it. You're doing it here, and it's running in L.A. Mm-hmm. And so then you said it went to Edinburgh. Now, how does that happen? I know. I know a lot of comics just go over there, and I heard there's a ton of stuff going on. But mm-hmm. did, did were you invited to Edinburgh to do it? Yeah, there was. Um, uh, the The play was getting uh, world recognition. It was being interviewed by. Why? This, do you, why do you think that? Because uh, uh, it had uh, four different levels of followers. H.P. Lovecraft, which has a huge following, and Stuart Gordon has a huge following. Uh, in and of his own. The movie reanimator has a huge following and George Went has a huge following. So there was kind of these four levels where, and because the splash zone, uh, the first four rows got sprayed, people would come dressed in white and wait for hours to get in the front row uh, because there was all these 
different level of fans who, you know, uh, and, and, and the play was really exciting and fun to be around. As a matter of fact, we all have made lifelong friends from people who have come to see the show 20 or 30 times, you know. A lot of the Simpsons animators and writers get caught wind of it, and a bunch of them, uh, you know, came to the show literally like 20, 25 times each. That's just, that, that's so cool. It's like, it's that kind of stuff like that. Yeah. That like, it's like a cult following, and it's, it is. it's so funny, and I, I've talked to that with different actors on the show who have been in shows that weren't really huge hits, but it had that, that that small thing and the fans mm-hmm. are just they're like they I've heard a lot of these fans like the Star Trek fans someone yeah. said are also times they see you on Star Trek but they want to know everything else about your career they just start following your whole career because they're like this guy was great not I mean it must be very weird yeah no it was fun and so what happened was is uh, we were actually uh, not only invited to Edinburgh but it's very unusual Edinburgh helped produce the show they wanted the stairs so bad so they paid some of the expenses because it's a big cast it's a big set it's a big show and um, and and they help sponsor and get people over there and um, and of course uh, the producer and director were integral in all of that so how does it get attention over because there's so much stuff going on in Edinburgh how did how did like did they really pitch it or did you was it uh, was the crowds packed all the time and were they you're used to performing in front no, of the American we, audience I mean was it was it a different I had never been to Edinburgh before so I had nothing to judge it by they said we were really successful but it it sort of starts out at a small spattering of people and then word kind of spreads and uh, people start reviewing it we got I think we got seven five star reviews which is, I don't know if that's unprecedented or not, but it's a lot of publicity. So it's just word of mouth, basically. What happens in Edinburgh is uh, people have to stand on the streets and flyer, give out flyers to their shows all the time, um, which we did a little bit of, but uh, our show was so popular that word of mouth just spread, and, and we had pretty good crowds every night. Now, how long was that for? It, we did 25 shows in 28 days. Okay, so that's that's a real, and that's a big workout. I mean, yeah, that was great. So it was. I think I slept in daylight. Or I slept in darkness three days out of wow. out of six weeks. You're so you, up all night. It's crazy. Yeah. So you do that, and then you said, "Now it went to other places." Then reanimated. No, that's the last time we did it. I thought it went to England. Um, no, okay. I, I was hoping. That's kind of why I went and stayed in uh, in England so long, as I was hoping it would go to the West End, and I'd still be there when it opened, but. Just kind of never panned out that way. Now, how did you start teaching across around the world? I know, didn't you teach in mm-hmm. Hawaii too? Yeah, I opened up a place in Maui called Maui Improv. You can go to MauiImprov.com and check that out. I have to go back there. Uh, I think in August I'm going to go. Now, how do you how do you find that market? Did you? It's, it's your you opened mm-hmm. it. Now, do you sit there and go, "Wow, there's no improv"? And do you scan like the internet, finding where there's improv or where a good place to open? No, it? I how did you end up there? Uh, uh, the Maui story is I had to go to uh, my friend Dave Floyd, who was in Detroit Times Theater, got married in Kauai. My wife and I have a timeshare in Kauai, and I've been teaching classes there off and on for about 15 years. And then when I was in New York uh, earlier in the year, I met this guy uh, named Mike Burton, who uh, uh, we improvised together at the Pit People's Improv Theater. And he had moved to Maui uh, during that time. And so he was going to come to Kauai for the workshop. And he said, can you just come to Maui and teach a workshop? And I said, sure. So I added another week to my trip and I went and taught a workshop there because he hadn't met anybody to improvise with. And my name attracted, you know, a lot of people. And there was about, you know, I think 25 
people in the workshop, and he got an email list and kept in touch with everybody and started doing a drop-in class, and we decided to open up a theater. And so I went there for the month of February this year and uh, did the first four-week intensive and had all the students do a show, and it was very successful, and it's been going really strong. A couple people have been over there. One guy from New York, uh, Dave Rosowski, was just there teaching uh, last week, I think. Um, and, uh, so we've been bringing people over from the mainland who are great, uh, you know, well, world-renowned improv teachers. And I mean, who doesn't want to go to Maui? Right, so you yeah. can go there and, you know, either, you know, at least pay for some of your expenses. We haven't quite gotten successful enough to actually fly people over and, and pay them a lot of money. But, um, you know, you get to keep a percentage of what the workshops bring in, which is pretty substantial. And you can basically go to Maui for free. So how did you end up teaching over in Europe? Over in Europe, I uh, sent an email to uh, this guy, David Shore, who introduced me to somebody virtually named Jules Munns, who runs the nursery in London. And um, he uh, he set up the first couple workshops, and they were so successful, I just stayed there for five months because we were just traveling around the world. We didn't have a place here. We, Like I said, we sold everything we owned. And uh, then uh, one of the people I met in uh, Edinburgh lived in London and her best friend's parents had a house that there was uh, only one person living in this five bedroom house. So they rented us a room in their house uh, for a hundred pounds a week, which is like 160 bucks a week. In a, in a five bedroom house. In a five bedroom house in Blackheath, which is like a very upscale, it's right next to Greenwich. And so we ended up staying in this house for five months. And basically, uh, we had the house to ourselves about maybe 70% of the time. Uh, sometimes the family who lived down south of England in Poole would come up on weekends or something. But uh, we had this place to ourselves, and it was a great place to, you know, just kind of uh, get to meet new people and establish myself over there. And through that, uh, you know, I went and sent an uh, email to uh, the only English-speaking improv group in Paris and I just went there and taught a workshop and while I was there I was invited to uh, Malaysia, Bulgaria and Helsinki to teach workshops to teach uh, improv so I'm going to work that out uh, later uh, this year maybe in the fall it's so funny you think about it it's like years it's like it's so you know when you when you were a little kid playing the tuba uh-huh. You know, I'm sure you never sat there and said, I'm going to be this renowned teacher and travel the world because you don't hear about people no. traveling the world to teach improv. I mean, improv is something I think they need to teach comedy. Mm-hmm. I uh, Stand up comedy, you don't need to teach it. I mean, it's basically when I took a comedy class to get me into business, it just said it made you put an act together and told you where to go. Yeah. But improv, there is a structure. Comedy, there's no structure. So I always crack up with the comedy teachers. It's like, you don't really need it, you know. It's but improv. Yeah. It seems you need it, and just it's a thing where. And there's, I mean, it's funny is you don't hear about a lot of. Is there a lot of improv teachers that go around the world, or is that like just you? I couldn't answer that. I don't know. I'm just fortunate enough to be doing it. I, I don't know anybody who gets to travel around the world, mostly around the United States. But uh, yeah, there are other people. That, you know, Joe Bill and uh, teaches uh, all over the world. I know he's uh, doing really well teaching improv. And, now, do you enjoy the travel? I mean, because it's like oh, you, go, yeah, you go away for a, a while. But, I mean, of course, who's going to complain about being in London for five months or Paris? Or I mean, it's not, you know, even. And Helsinki, I mean, hey, they opened the Planet Hollywood out there years ago. So it's got to yeah, be Yeah, I hear it's really happening. I'm excited to, to go teach there. Um, yeah, no, I love traveling. I love being away. I love being home. Like I said, I get to do all these amazing things, and I love everything I do. So it's just exciting to 
always have something new on the horizon and to grow and meet new people and it's just really rewarding. Now, do you still do the Too Bizarre a lot or Tuba Too Bizarre? Well, I've been traveling a lot, so I haven't really had time. But a lot of people have been calling me and asking me when I'm going to do the next show. And I, I think I'm going to I'm going to try, probably try it at a new space, I think, um, for a couple of reasons. But, um, yeah, I'll I, I, I have to do is book the space and then I'll get the show going. It's sort of like... You have to put the cart before the horse right. with that, because well, otherwise want, you never get it done. If you yeah. don't have a deadline, you, you won't do it. Well, you knew Clark Weaver. That's, of course, that's how, that's yeah. How, that's how we met. And exactly. That, that whole comedy troupe, I mm-hmm. put together, because everyone says, we want to do this, we want to do this. And I was like, well, you know, fine. I talked to this guy. I said, I want to do, you know, I want I want to do this. You have here in the Lillian Theater. They had this very small room. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to do that. And so I just booked a date, and then I sat there and said, okay, I have three months to find bunch of people that's how you do it and then i sat there and i met clark i mean we worked we waited tables at uh uh-huh. gordon beers and it's just weird than the other people i got and it's just weird it's true you have to be proactive because people you're right there's act, working actors and people who talk about working and it's yeah. just it's very interesting you just got to get in action that's what it's all about it's just do something about it now when do you leave the country again is there any plans or you just uh, like out? i said in the fall i'm, I'm still working uh, and the people in bulgaria are trying to get a government grant to bring me over there and where's bulgaria uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I know the name. I don't it's know. It's in Europe. <laughs> now, are you still doing a lot of improv? Yeah, yeah. I just uh, performed uh, about a week ago in Culver City at that Fanatic Salon. And, uh, um, you know, I'm all over the place. I play tuba in the orchestra for that show called Mortified, which I just did a couple weeks ago as well. And that'll be happening in uh, in July. Or no, in June. Coming up. It is June already, isn't it? It's June Holy 3rd. Me. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. It's time's flying. Uh, it's been so yeah. warm this year that it, it hasn't seemed like there, there, there was no like winter. So it just everything's no. ran together. And today That's I'm going, great. I'm going, man, the inside of my car is really hot. And I'm like, well, duh, it's June. And my girlfriend said, it's going to be hot this week. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, well, she just can't believe that it's been like 80 since she's moved out here. Like she, she it's moved amazing, out in October. Isn't it? We've had like no rain. I think it rained once, but we've had three earth. I felt three earthquakes. I usually don't feel the earthquakes. How exciting. It's weird. You sit there because she was her first earthquake. She's like, well, there was one in New Jersey years ago, but it's just weird. It's it's weird, but it, you get complacent and and like they there was one yesterday. Was it yesterday? Day before yesterday? Yeah, was, I felt it for a second, and it barely was even on the news. I mean, they you just, they used to stop programming and say, "Oh my God, you know, it's like a car chase." They'll break into any program to show a car chase. I always and, say, I wish there was an earthquake during a car chase. Yes. That would be the best news coverage oh, ever. That would be awesome. <laughs> Too funny. Um, so yeah, it, it, you, it's like I was here for the Northridge earthquake, and that was really intense. That was kind of crazy. Um, but you, if, unless it's like a, you know something crushes or falls down or happens, you just there's a really funny scene in the movie L.A. Story that Steve Martin wrote where they're having an earthquake while they're all sitting in a restaurant ordering coffee, and they just don't even pay attention to yeah, it. it. Yeah, you just get used to it. Half yeah. the time, you don't even feel it. You don't. We've about five minutes left. Uh, are you now, besides the teaching and the mm-hmm. uh, too bizarre and the yeah. stage work, and are you are you going out and auditioning for acting like like oh yeah screen and stuff? Yeah, it just, seems you're so busy that it's like it must be hard to for you to book something because you you you're traveling all the time. No, you just it just all kind of happens. I just did a horror movie. I was on a set for three days uh, a few weeks ago. That was really fun. I teach classes at John Rosenfeld Studios. I just started doing that a couple weeks ago, uh, which is a really great acting studio here in L.A. 
um, check them out and check out my classes. That'll be starting there. I think June 28th is the first class there. Now, what's um, the class? Six weeks or how long are the classes usually? Oh, well, this is just a one-off thing. Eventually, we're going to do it month by month. Okay. So it'll be a four-week session. Um, and it's $50 a class. So it's really cheap and reasonable, you know, 200 bucks a month. And, um, uh, you know, come study with me. It's really a lot of fun. And uh, I've been uh, pretty successful at this all over the world. So I must be doing something right. And it's all improv. Yeah, yeah, that's all improv. I should take a class with you. I've always thought yeah. about that. I've, I've always considered taking improv because I, I did stand up and I, you know, I would riff on the audience. But I've always, and I, it's so funny because as I talk to so many of Chicago people who have been on the show, mm-hmm. you people, it's those, it's those, it's those Chicago people. improv yeah. people. But it just, it seems like, like you go to see improv and, and I'll be honest, everyone has in their mind, it's the, give me a place, give me, you know, that thing. But there's so much more. And the problem is sometimes you just, you're clueless to what, like when you, like a herald. I don't know what a herald is. I don't, people explain uh-huh. it and I, I don't get it. It's like, it's just a we. it's there's so much, I think you have, it's, it's, well, it's very a, deep. It's like an improvised play uh, or an improvised movie and it starts at one uh, place and then it goes in a million different directions and then it culminates coming back to basically where you started and that's what a herald is. Well, we got a few minutes left. I want to talk about uh, Killer Drag Queens on Dope. Uh, How did you end up in, did you know Laz or did you know yeah. Clark or... Well, no, my friend uh, uh, Frank. Um, Frank, who we have. Bert, yeah, Frank Barron, uh, who who passed away, is uh, uh, a really good friend of mine. His wife and kids are still uh, close uh, uh, to us, and uh, I really love those guys, Susan Barron and Annabelle and Ruby. Uh, and so Frank was a friend of mine. He worked with Laz, and Laz was casting this thing. So that's how I I met Laz was through Frank. Laz is funny. He's, I, I just ran into him. I ran into him. He was on the show, like, God, three years ago. I ran into him at, uh, I needed a guest, and it was during football season. I went to watch the end of the Eagles game, uh-huh. and I see Laz, and I go, hey, what are you doing Tuesday? He goes, oh, you want to come on the show? He goes, all right. Well, he doesn't know it's an hour. He thinks it's like a round table. So he yeah. gets here, and he's like, and I, was, I had an audition that day, so I was in a suit. And he's like, where's everybody? I go, it's just me and you. He's like, what? And you know, Laz is so laid back, and uh, I just ran into him at Sprouts the other day. It's just like uh, running into the most random places. It's like I'll see him at Joaquin or at Sprouts. I'm like, you know, it's just how often you see guys, which I love Sprouts. But uh, so, so cool. what? So yeah. So and we, me and Mark played uh, Tony and Anthony in which That's my true. friend watched the movie, and he's like, he goes, With the it's Arquette, so bad. Right? Yeah, he goes, it's so bad. It's uh, it's good it's like i don't know about that. yeah i know it's nice I, don't, do. I don't think i've ever seen it i think i, I someone someone burnt me a copy so oh, really? i watched it and i was like oh god but it was fun well it was great meeting you and it's always great to work no matter what it's on but yeah that movie really uh, did not do too well so now do you have a, a website or anything or can yeah markbeltsman.com i'm on facebook i'm on twitter uh, what's your tweet what's your what's your twitter at, at mark beltsman okay yeah spell that because people you know get m-a-r-k-b-e-l-t-z-m-a-n because a lot of people out in hollywood there's a lot of mark with a c and mark with a k that's uh, k you never know and so what what live shows are coming up anything in like your two bazaar is going to be in the future well did you yeah. post that on your website two, yeah i post everything uh basically on facebook more than anything because that's you know seems to be the social networking site of the day or Twitter and um, LinkedIn. There's so many of them. But uh, I'm doing this play uh, called Without a Net at the White Fire Theater starting in July. Um, there's uh, MauiImprov.com. There's uh, teaching classes at John Rosenfeld Studios. Two Bazaars coming up pretty soon. And uh, I got, I just like I said, I finished this movie. 
I have a movie called The Company that's going around to festivals right now and uh, was sold overseas. So, yeah, a lot happening. And uh, just uh, come check me out on uh, Facebook and follow everything I do. Lorna, thank you for coming on. It was good to see thank you. Thank you, man. And people, uh, don't forget, uh, follow me at Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, uh, coopertalk.net. I think I have like 260 episodes up there now. Also, if you go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio, just type in Cooper Talk, one word. You can listen there. Um, the Cooper Talk Live with John Coppolos went very well. I'm doing one again June 14th at Bob's Espresso, owned by uh, Robert Romanus, the moan from Fast Monster Ridgemont High. 7 o'clock, free show. Um, my guest is... Right now, we're scheduled as Jordan Brady, who's promoting the new movie I Am Road Comic. He directed I Am Comic. Hopefully, he didn't do something. He may have a, a pending gig. We've got to find out. Then I'll have to get someone else. Also, every Tuesday night, come to Jimmy's Place in Burbank on uh, San Fernando between Grismer and Amherst. I host crappy comedy. So, yeah, follow me on Twitter. Send me an email, cooper at indie100.com. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Remember, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. 